We're 100 days into the grand legal cannabis experiment in Canada. And despite a lot of predictions ranging from government blunders to total chaos, things seem to be going not so badly. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10.3. Coming up, we'll look at how Canada has fared with legalized cannabis, how the market has grown, what challenges there still are to overcome, and what the future holds for pot in this country. Before we take a look at the marijuana haze that's hanging over Canada, I just want to ask you to do me a favor. If you like the show, then definitely tell your friends about us and let them know they can subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you're feeling really charitable, maybe tell them to leave us a review. We value all the feedback we've been getting. Megan Henderson is the executive producer of The Growth Op, Post Media's hub for all things cannabis. So, Megan... Cannabis has been legal now for just over 100 days. At what point did the country descend into anarchy? <laughs> well, I mean, I think, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be back on the show again. Um, I think, you know, anarchy, yes, I think there was some expectation that there might be a little bit more anarchy. I think <laughs> there really hasn't been. Uh, in fact, I think we just published a story last week about how a Saskatchewan study showed no uh, no increase or no significant increase in kids accidentally ingesting their parents' gummies, you know, their cannabis-infused gummies, which is no surprise to anybody. So I think, you know, people who maybe weren't into cannabis before legalization, there was an expectation certainly around impaired driving and other things like that, that there was going to be this massive increase post-legalization. And we really haven't seen that. It, You know, there was a lot of people in this country using cannabis before legalization, and those people have just continued to do so. And now we have some new people trying it. And, you know, nothing's really gone off the rails. What does the pot landscape look like across the country? Is access to cannabis the same everywhere you go? Are we still dealing with some provinces or some places that are are trying to catch up with others? For sure. I mean, I think, you know, you, you hear a lot and you've heard a lot in the last couple of weeks, especially about the supply shortage. I think, you know, when you look at certain provinces, especially somewhere like Alberta, um, where they seem to roll out the smoothest uh, across the country compared to a lot of other provinces, even there, they've had issues with supply shortages. And I think, you know, we, we've talked to Health Canada and they've said, listen, from our point of view, there's supply when we look. And they, they are listing monthly supply numbers now on the Health Canada website that gets updated every month now. So that, that last update was just last week uh, where they're saying, you know, according to their numbers, based on what they're hearing from licensed producers who have to report into them, that the supply is uh, greater than the demand right now. But I think the question is, is whether or not the individual provinces uh, negotiated correctly or, or built the right number of contracts with the right number of licensed producers to meet the supply. I think the number one thing that we've seen is that there was a clear underestimation by the provinces and I think to by the federal government in terms of what the demand was going to be from Canadian consumers for legal cannabis. Yeah, you mentioned Alberta. I know that uh, here in Alberta, the the provincial government had to suspend handing out uh, retail licenses due to a lack of supply. And they've just last week uh, said, okay, we think we're good. So we're going to issue another 10. Do you think that, that things are starting to iron, iron themselves out in that aspect? I mean, I think it's certainly getting better. You know, the the logic right now is that the supply and demand issues are going to last for at least 18 to 24 months. 
you know, whether or not that's the reality or not, it really depends, I think, on uh, how quickly more licensed producers continue to come online. We, we've got the micro cultivation license now in play. So there'll be more sort of craft growers licensed to, to grow and, and, and feed into that supply. Um, I think, you know, when you look at Ontario and the rollout with the retail here, it's it's sort of unfortunate because, you know, everyone got really excited about being open for business and 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 the the sort of ramifications that that would bring and more um, entrepreneurism and things like that around cannabis in Ontario. But then they sort of quickly uh, curtailed it to 25 licenses. And I think that that's unfortunate because it's going to make it a longer rollout for retail in this province. But I think Alberta really... Um, was right to sort of slow things down. They're the most developed. They had the most uh, amount of retail already open compared to everybody else. Um, and so it was it was only a matter of time, I think, before they had to slow things down. So the fact that they're just reevaluating, that's what you have to do, I think, if you're going to maintain uh, upward trajectory on this. You have to constantly reevaluate and pivot based on what you know to be true. So, And that's what they're doing, which I think is the responsible thing to do. We've had a couple of months of uh, data come available who is buying pot the most or where are people buying pot the most? Nova Scotia is just eating it up like it's candy. I mean, that's <laughs> not probably the best way to put it. But I mean, you know, when we look at the so StatsCan is doing a quarterly survey uh, nationally around cannabis and different aspects of cannabis. But one of the things that they're looking at mostly is consumption. So who's consuming cannabis in what province and and sort of at what degree. So they're looking at Canadians who are 15 years or older who are uh, identifying that they use cannabis. So when they first started this, the first one they released was in April of 2018. So uh, that was, Nova Scotia was still the highest province. At that point, they were 20% uh, of people who were acknowledging they use cannabis. But there was a real theory that not everybody was yet comfortable admitting they used cannabis. So were those numbers really real? You know, mm -hmm. I think now with the third quarter one that came out, um, in October, we saw that number in Nova Scotia go from 20% to 23%. So they're still the highest province in terms of consumption. Um, but we are starting to see people, I think, uh, feel more comfortable at, at admitting that they're consuming cannabis. And and all over the Maritimes, you know, they're on par with the rest of the country in terms of cannabis use and, and compared to other provinces like Ontario and Saskatchewan and Alberta. And how much money are we talking about here, especially looking at places like the Maritimes? I, do we know in terms of per capita numbers, uh, what kind of dollars people are spending? Well, we know how much the average person is spending for, for cannabis in the post six weeks from legalization. So, um, you know, depending on the, the province, the StatsCan numbers, uh, Prince Edward Island topped the list in terms of the average spending. So a person in, in PEI is spending about $13.83 on legal pot for that first six weeks. And then Nova Scotia's just below that with $11.34. That doesn't seem like a lot, but, uh, you know, when you've got millions of people purchasing it, you know, it, it can be, it all adds up, right? So mm -hmm. uh, a lot of it is, um, you know, pre-rolls and, and because we're limited on the types of products they're purchasing too, like it could be one person who's just buying one thing, right? Newfoundland Lab Labrador had uh, the third highest at $8.17. So, you know, uh, th these maritime provinces are paying more right now on average. The national, like sort of national average is only $2.65. So the Maritimes is really paying more for their pot right now. We'll be right back. 
We're approaching the best part of the NHL season. Coming out of the All-Star break, there will be a ton of trade talk as teams load up to make a push to the playoffs. And we all know that hockey fans will be keeping an eye on the wildcard race, not to mention which coaches or GMs could get bounced from their jobs early. With so much going on in the NHL, you want a little more news and a deeper look at the playoff picture. We've got it with the Off the Post podcast. Our team of hockey experts joins host Paul Chapman for a deep dive on the big issues in the NHL. Check it out on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Looking at the enforcement side of things, there were concerns going into legalization that you may see a spike in drug-impaired drivers, that you may see uh, still a black market operating, that there would still be a need for policing dollars. Are any of these concerns coming to fruition, or is it still an area where we're waiting on data becoming available? So one of the most interesting things we've seen, um, you know, content-wise on the Growth Up is uh, one of our most popular articles is, will CBD cause me to fail a drug test? And this is, I think, something that's really important for people to understand is that most of these drug tests, the Drager included, are really testing for THC. So if you're a medical user who is using a high CBD strain or using CBD uh, oil or tincture, uh, depending on, you, you know, you'd have to take a lot of CBD only for it to register on a test like this. Uh, but if you're using a combination uh, strain that is perhaps a one-to-one ratio, so you have one part THC and one part CBD, or it's perhaps a high CBD strain, but there is THC in it, there is still a chance that you're going to fail that type of test because it's really looking just for that THC. And if you do have THC in your system, there is a chance you will fail, even if you're using a high CBD strain. So those are the types of things that um, you know, I think it's interesting for people to know, especially medical patients. I think that's who's going to be most affected by these driving impaired um, issues right now is that, you know, you're a medical user and you you have to use on a regular basis. And if you were using a strain that has THC, then you could be affected by these the change in the law and the new uh, testing formats. Are any law enforcement agencies in Canada using the Dreger drug test machine yet? So as far as I know, in December, uh, Winnipeg and I want to say Saskatoon um, were the only two cities that I'm aware of that have rolled out uh, using the Draeger. I think we're starting to see more um, provinces. We know that the government bought a a certain number of them and they'll be distributing them, sorry, at through the various uh, police agencies. Um, But so far, we've only seen, as I said, those two cities that have sort of started taking it on. For the most part, especially when you look at retail and and private companies that have gotten into the marketplace in cannabis, there are a lot of people who are happy with legalization. uh, But in the first 100 days, there are also people who aren't pleased with how things have been set up. Um, One example would be... uh, high-profile marijuana activist Jody Emery, who has complained uh, that we're looking at another form of prohibition here because uh, dispensaries in places like BC have been basically told you can't operate, or if you have a record, you can't operate. Uh, what is the the sense of people who are unhappy or, or were hoping to get involved and feel that they've been shut out? I mean, I think... Yeah, there, there's certainly uh, two minds or, or several minds really on on the whole rollout of legalization. Like no one thought it was going to be perfect. And I, and I think we all acknowledge that it wasn't perfect. I think there's a couple of different challenges here. I think one is that 
for some people, the heavy amount of regulation around cannabis uh, sales and and adult use in this country feels very nanny state. Um, you know, as I said before, people in this country have been using cannabis for quite some time, um, and and a large mm-hmm. number of the population. So, you know, for those people to now go from a, a the black market, a gray market system to the illegal market system. That's a transition that a lot of them aren't necessarily liking because the quality isn't necessarily there. The variety of product isn't necessarily there that they've been used to. And so a lot of them are sticking with that. I think, um, you know, we may see that change. I think certainly for people who are new to cannabis or coming back to it for a long time, they're really pleased with the rollout in terms of feeling safe with the products that they're buying and consuming. They know there's a consistency. They know what to expect because the labeling is correct and the testing is all there. I mean, we've certainly seen some hiccups even with that. You know, we've had several recalls already from mold. Uh, There was the issue with... um, the licensed producer in uh, Winnipeg who had bought gray market cannabis and put it into their legal market Hmm. cannabis uh, packaging. So there's certainly been, even on the legal side, some hiccups. But I think overall, most people who are looking at this for the first time feel that there's a better consistency level with legal. Um, I think from an activist point of view, I think it depends on who you talk to. I think there are certainly some people like the Emery's who feel like they were trailblazers and they 100% were. And now they feel like, you know, to a certain degree, cannabis is being gentrified, which it is, is being professionalized and, and, and turned into a, a, a functioning cohesive industry, although it's in its infancy. And there are a lot of people who were activists and who were in the gray market who are transitioning into the legal market. Is there a place for all those people? Yes, there is. Whether or not the licensed producers are fully recognizing their abilities and the skill set that they can bring and experience they can bring, I don't know that that's always the case. I think some of them definitely are. I think licensed producers, in some cases, have really actively tried to include include those people. If you look at Indiva out of London, Ontario, their master grower Pete, you know, he has got a he has been part of the legalization movement since you know the late '90s, and he was part of the initial case uh, for you know legalizing medical marijuana. He's got a long history as an activist. Uh, and he's their master grower. There's a lot of cases like that that we're not always hearing about uh, where these uh, former activists or, or gray market folks are moving into the legal market. Um, I think some people don't like it because they feel like it's selling out. But, you know, I don't think so. I think they're bringing their skill set and their experience into the mix. So, I mean, you're always going to get people who like and dislike things. You're not going to be able to please everybody. But I think overall, um, you know, we're continuing to see the kinks being worked out. We're continuing to see, you know, the importance of uh, women's place within these companies and equality in terms of, you know, the boardroom and having women have a seat at the table be a real focus and, and bringing in those black market and gray market folks who want to be part of the legal market. They're being given opportunities, maybe not as many as they should, but I think that that's also shifting as well. So I think everybody's aim is is to be positive and, and to keep moving in a positive direction. But is everybody going to see it that way? Of course not. Now, as someone who covers cannabis, really pays attention to the issue, what has been the most surprising to you about the first 100 days since legalization? I mean, I think, I don't think there's a huge number of surprises. I think for anybody who was looking at this from the inside, always, I think, um, had hoped that we would see um, the transition that we're seeing with people's uh, thought process. I think that's the biggest thing in terms of the biggest success I've seen is that the stigma continues to um, 
be diminished. We continue to see, and even the stats can evidence of, you know, the first national survey that came out in October of 2018 and the one that came out in, or sorry, the one that came out in April versus the one that came out in October. Again, we're seeing more people comfortably saying, yes, I use cannabis. And that is really the goal here is that we get to a stage where people do not feel like they can't talk about their cannabis use just like they would their alcohol use. You know, we we need to get on a, uh, the same page where people can feel comfortable talking about using a topical for their arthritis versus taking an, uh, you know, an, a leave or an Advil, right? And, you know, I was at a conference uh, two weeks ago or last week, I can't remember exact date. And it was, we we're talking about risk management. And from an advertising standpoint, I think when we can get to a place where, you know, you see those Aleve commercials where it's like the 55 plus lady who's decided she's going to skydive because she's taken an Aleve and now her arthritis is so much better. You know, when we get to a stage where, cannabis is more, um, you know, integrated into our over-the-counter products. And we it will be in some way, shape, or form in the future. That's where we're headed. And when we can have, you know, the same level of parity for those uh, cannabis-based drugs, over-the-counter medicines and wellness products that other pharmaceutical and alcoholic beverages have, I think that that's when we're going to really feel like we've, we've, we've come to the best place. Right now, it's still really stigmatized and people are still getting used to it being legal. But I think overall, the movement is positive in destigmatizing it and people feeling like it's not, you know, such a bad thing. We're seeing a lot of engagement with people trying to understand how they can use it in their lives. Um, you talk about the the medical possibilities uh, of cannabis going forward and the research possibilities. On the consumer side, what do we see next? Edibles become legal soon. Will we see cannabis lounges in places across the country? What what happens next here in Canada as far as that issue goes? Yeah, I mean, obviously, right now the consultation around edibles is happening, and that's uh, and that's going to end soon. I think it's ending at the end of this month, um, and then the the uh, government will make their decision, and and those rules will be rolled out, and and that legalization, that phase of legalization, will occur in the fall, uh, and that you know we're seeing a really big focus on uh, beverages when it comes to edibles, but there will be other things like topicals and and um, you know the more traditional edible stuff uh, on the market as well. So I think you know from the, from the point of view of the licensed producers, everybody's really working towards that goal right now. So, you know, up until that launches in October, that's really going to be a huge focus for most people is those edibles and topicals. And then I think next year, yeah, I mean, I, I know there's already, uh, you know, lobbying going on and has been for quite some time around the lounges. And I think that is the next phase. I think if you can have a bar, then you should be able to have a lounge and people need to be able to go somewhere they're comfortable and socialize and use cannabis and not uh, feel like they can't uh, indulge in that uh, when they so choose, just like any other uh, recreational um, drug like alcohol and, and caffeine. I mean, certainly there's no shortage of coffee shops. So I think the next step really uh, in, in 2020 has to be around lounges, if not before them. But, I, you know, again, I know that work is already happening. Um, I think then you know, part of the other thing we're seeing, and it comes again from the research that's really opened up since legalization and just prior to that, um, is, you know, understanding the different cannabinoids, identifying all the cannabinoids properly, really understanding their uses and how they work together and, and the entourage effect of different pieces uh, like the terpenes and things like that. Um, we're seeing more um, investment in, in that type of research because pharmaceutical companies and the licensed producers really want to be able to get down into the nitty gritty 
gritty of these components within the larger cannabis plant and then figure out how we can make those into more consistent dosing um, and delivery methods for folks to use the most beneficial parts of cannabis, right? So if they don't want to get high and they want to use CBD, you know, we've already seen a huge um, growth in CBD products, but there's a way to make these more like vitamins or incorporated into, you know, somebody was saying, uh, you know, when we look at headache pills, you know, willow bark is the active ingredient in an aspirin or, or to treat a headache, but you don't see people chewing on bark, right? Um, you, you, you've taken that, you've identified that ingredient and you've turned it into a pharmaceutical or a pill that people can take and get the same result every time. And that's where we're going with cannabis. It's just a matter of time. Well, it is fascinating. The, for a lot of people, October 17th, the fact that they could uh, purchase and consume cannabis legally was the end of a journey, but uh, there's definitely a, a lot of uh, horizons to explore here. Megan, thanks very much for catching us up on the subject. Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. Ten Three is produced by Carson Jarama. Special thanks to my guest, Megan Henderson. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.